Welcome to Reimagining Atlantis. My name's Tori, and I'll be your host. Friends, this is episode 20. When I first started this journey, I wasn't sure how long this venture would go. I'm still not sure how much content I can provide before we just run out of stuff. I've been told that the use of the word stuff is just lazy writing. I guess I'm lazy. I've been having debates with others for years about Stone Age Atlantis theory, and I can't believe how much people hold on to the 9,000 years ago but dismiss the triremes, the war chariots, and a writing system. I think that 9,000 years ago aligns well with the mother civilization theory, though. Stone Age Atlantis theorists think that Egypt was a civilization that developed after the fall of Atlantis. This mother civilization theory all derived from one book called Atlantis, the Antediluvian World. I read this book a very long time ago, and I remember it rubbing me the wrong way. And it wasn't very impressionable on my mind. I think for the sake of this podcast, I'll read it again. But I think my issue with the book is that it has a very strong underlying feel of white supremacy. I always try to maintain an open mind, even to the bigoted. I found a very impressive YouTube channel once that really went into some deep ancient history and archaeology and I found it incredibly fascinating. And I spent hours listening to him. However, some of the words he used and the placement of his words, while he tried to sound scientific, it just had that underlying pull of division. And I can only stomach so much of it. I don't know, it makes me kind of physically nauseous just trying to have people convince me that a group of people could be better than another group of people. Anyway, personally, I don't care what color the gods were. I don't need them to look exactly like me to feel a bond. I feel just as connected to the ocean. I feel a pull calling me to the sea. Does that mean I bond more with Okeanos and Tethys? And if so, they're just the personification of water. So I guess that makes me drawn to the color blue. You better watch out for my bias. Interesting enough, there is a tribe of people who have naturally blue skin. I find it fascinating and not repulsive. Remember, if you go searching for something, you're bound to find it and everyone is pushing their own agenda, including myself. I feel like I may have to dive into this world a bit to properly explain it, and I need to understand how this book has affected people so much. I think I'm pretty stuck in my beliefs of unity, equality, and equity in the power of diversity that I should be safe from influence, but we'll see. Most likely, I'll probably just stop reading. We each have a choice on the type of person we want to be. We are defined by the choices we make, not by our thoughts or our feelings. For this episode, I'm going to go over a famous harbor city that suddenly disappeared from history. It has been referenced as another possible location for Atlantis and has been examined by archaeologists for years, Tar Tessos. To accomplish this, I'm going to use the help of the following authors, Herodotus, 
an ancient Greek historian and geographer from the Greek city of Halicarnassus. Herodotus was the first writer to do a systematic investigation of historical events. He's referred to as the father of history and lived from 484 BCE to 425 BCE. Ephorus was an ancient Greek historian known for his universal history, living from roughly 400 BCE to 330 BCE. Arian was a Greek historian, public servant, military commander, and philosopher of the Roman period, living roughly around 86 CE to 146 CE. Pausanias was a Greek traveler and geographer of the second century CE. He is famous for his description of Greece and a lengthy work that describes ancient Greece from his first-hand observations. I have also used an article on the history of Spain and it is linked in my episode description. Tartessos is a river in the land of the Iberians. It reaches the sea by two mouths, and between these two mouths lay a city with the same name, Tartessos. The river is the longest in Iberia, has tides, and is now called Betis, Tartessos. That rolls off my tongue like Tartuga. It feels very piratey to me. And I want to start singing sea shanties. Tartessos. Some of you may have heard of this city, and it's nagging at you in the back of your head. Others may just be shaking your head at me while listening in childlike curiosity. In the Bronze Age, tin was in short supply. Although the Leviant had access to a decent supply of tin, and I want to say they got it mostly from Afghanistan, a large amount of tin actually came from the Celts. The Celts would travel down the coast of France and past Portugal to finally land just within the sites of the Pillars of Melkart. The Tartesian language is an extinct pre-Roman language once spoken in southern Iberia. The oldest known indigenous texts of Iberia, dated from the 7th to the 6th centuries BCE, are written in Tartesian. The inscriptions are written in a semi-symbolic writing system called the Southwest Script. They were found in the general area in which Tartessos was located and in surrounding areas of influence. The Tartesian language texts were found in southwestern Spain and southern Portugal. Tartessos can be seen on Herodotus's map, and their story seems very similar to the fate of the Atlanteans. Tartessos was a semi-mythical harbor city, and the surrounding culture on the southern coast of the Iberian Peninsula in the modern Andalusia, Spain, at the mouth of the Guadalquivir River. It appears in sources from Greece and the Near East starting during the first millennium BCE. Herodotus describes Tartessos as beyond the pillars of Heracles. Archaeological discoveries in the region have built up a picture of a more widespread culture, identified as Tartesian. 
that includes some 97 inscriptions in a Tartesian language. The Tartesians were rich in metal. In the 4th century BCE, the historian Ephorus describes a very prosperous market called Tartessos with much tin carried by river, as well as gold and copper by the Celtic lands. Herodotus refers to a king of Tartessos, Argentanios, presumably named for his wealth in silver. The people from Tartessos became important trading partners of the Phoenicians, whose presence in Iberia dates from the 8th century BCE, and who nearby built a harbor of their own in Gadir, or modern-day Cadiz, Spain. Pausanias, writing in the 2nd century CE, identified the river and gave details of the location of the city. Here's a quote from Pausanias. They say that Tartessus is a river in the land of the Iberians, running down into the sea by two mouths, and between those two mouths lie a city of the same name, the river, which is the largest in Iberia, and Tidal, those of later day called Bastias, and there are some who think that Tartessus was the ancient name of Carpia, the city of the Iberians. Both Atlantis and Tartessos were believed to be advanced societies which collapsed when their cities were lost beneath the waves. Supposed further similarities with the legendary society, making a connection seem feasible Though virtually nothing is known of Tartessos, not even its precise site. Other Tartesian enthusiasts imagine it is a contemporary of Atlantis with which it might have traded. Simbacha, and I apologize for trying this name, Simbacha Jobovici stated that the biblical Tarshish, which he believes is the same as Tartessos, was Atlantis and that Atlantis was hiding in the Tannic, although this is heavily disputed by most archaeologists involved in the project. I think the important part to consider when we're talking about Atlantis is not the question of if it is Atlantis. We already know that there is a big red X marks the spot on the Atlas Mountains, by the Garden of the Hesperides. More, I want you to see these following quotes and listen to how they're worded when describing where Tartessos is located and apply this to how Plato describes where Atlantis was located. Here's Ephorus, and he writes that the capital of Tartessos was two days travel or 1,000 stadiums from the Pillars of Hercules. From Gibraltar to the present mouth of Guadalquivir, there are 900 stadiums, or about 104 miles, or 166 kilometers. As you can see, the ancient authors would use the straits as a landmark and make reference to how many days' journey one had to travel beyond or past from the pillars. Also take note of the language and how ocean is called the open sea. There are other such references when talking about Hanno the Explorer, who was a Phoenician. My next episode, we will discuss Hanno in detail. But for now, let's pay attention to 
how the language is used. Here's Arion. Hanan the Libyan set out from Carthage, with Libya on his left, and sailed out beyond the Pillars of Hercules into the Outer Sea. Continuing his voyage, then in an easterly direction, for a total of 35 days. But when he eventually turned south, he met a number of crippling obstacles. Lack of water, burning heat, streams of lava gushing into the sea. Hanno's report was an inscription in a Carthaginian temple. What we have been discussing up until now was a Greek adaption of this text. Here's Herodotus. The Carthaginians tell us that they trade with a race of men who live in a part of Libya beyond the Pillars of Hercules. On reaching this country, they unload their goods, arrange them tidily along the beach, and then, returning to their boats, raise a smoke. Seeing the smoke, the natives come down to the beach, place on the ground a certain quantity of gold in exchange for the goods, and go off again into a distance. The Carthaginians then come ashore and take a look at the gold, and if they think it presents a fair price for their wares, they collect it and go away. If on the other hand it seems too little, they go back aboard and wait. The natives come and add to the gold until they are satisfied. There is perfect honesty on both sides. The Carthaginians never touch the gold until it equals in value that which they have offered for sale, and the natives never touch the goods until the gold has been taken away. Here's Arion. Hanno left Carthage and sailed beyond the Pillars of Hercules on the Atlantic Ocean, keeping Libya on his left hand. He sailed eastward for 35 days, but when he turned to the south he encountered many problems, lack of water, burning heat, and rivers of fire flowing into the sea. That brief statement may not seem very spectacular, but in fact it is very remarkable. The ancient map markers saw Africa as a trapezium or a triangle, with the Mediterranean coast as its longest side. Now let's compare how Plato describes where Atlantis is in regards to the pillars. This power came forth out of the Atlantic Ocean, for in those days, the Atlantic was navigable, and there was an island situated in front of the straits, which are by you called the Pillars of Hercules. I feel like if Atlantis were located in the Atlantic Ocean, or even if someone had to go to the open sea past the Straits of Gibraltar, we would have some time frame of how long beyond the pillars one had to go. According to Plato, Atlantic City Harbor was full of triremes and naval stores, and people came from all parts of the known world. Plato says the following, Of the combatants, on the one side, the city of Athens was reported to have been the leader and to have fought out the war. The combatants on the other side were commanded by the kings of Atlantis, which, as was saying, was an island greater in extent than Libya and Asia, and when afterwards, sunk by an earthquake, became an impassable barrier of mud to voyagers sailing from hence to any part of the ocean. 
It is possible that from Egypt one could get to Atlantis from some river or series of rivers, like River Triton. After the major Atlantis earthquake, the river lost its main water source and began to dry up. So for me, I think it is completely possible that there was once from Egypt, or maybe even from the Nile, you had the ability to turn westward. Potentially, Lake Triton, and from that river, or maybe even a series of rivers, from Egypt, you could once get to the Atlantic Ocean other than from the Mediterranean. What do you think? Tartessos' political system was a monarchy with a central capital from which they controlled the entire territory. And Creon mentioned in 530 BCE the greatest, the greatest richness and complex political structures of the kingdom. And Strabo wrote, They are considered the most educated of the Iberians and have a scripture, even have historical chronicles, poems, and laws in verse, which they say are 6,000. Today, we don't know if the number 6,000 refers to the age of the codex or its length. If it were 6,000 verses or laws because the document is badly damaged and the word that follows the number is illegible. We also don't know how old the Tartesian language is and it has not yet been deciphered. A number of steles, which are written pieces of stone, with their writing have been found. The oldest among them is dated around the 9th century BCE. So for context, this is 200 years older than Homer or Hesiod. There are also mentions of several mythical kings of Tartessos. Geryon was the king whose great cattle herds were stolen by Heracles Alcides. Norax, the grandson of Geryon, conquered the south of Sardinia, where he founded the city of Nora. He dictated the first laws, divided the kingdom into seven cities, the society into seven classes, and forced the noble class to work. Gargorius introduced beekeeping and trade, as well as new agricultural tools like the plow. But only about one of them are specific historical sources. Argentanio the last known king of Tartessos. King Argentanio has been mentioned many times by Anacreon, Avenius, Strabo, Lucian, Cicero, Plinius, Valerius Maximus, among others, and everybody writes about the wealth, pacifism, and hospitality of his kingdom. Also, Herodotus reports about Argentino, the silver man, the last king of Tartessos, who reigned between 630 to 550 BCE, and mentions his incalculable wealth and generosity. He also writes about his friendship with the Greeks. When the expansion of the Persian Empire was threatening the Ionian cities on the west coast of Asia Minor, Argentina even invited the Greeks to establish settlements within his territory. The Greeks did not accept his offer, but accepted the 1,500 kilograms of silver 
Argentinos sent them to strengthen the walls of Phocia, their capital located in today's Turkey. Nevertheless, the Greeks were unable to stop the Persians, and the Ionian cities were falling under Persian domination. At the end, Phocia was conquered and destroyed about 540 BCE, 10 years after the death of Argentania. The friendship between Argentania and the Greeks must have been very uncomfortable for the Phoenicians, who feared that their traditional monopoly on the trade with the Tartessos might be threatened. Strabo refers to this fact when he wrote, the best cities of Tartessos were inhabited by the Phoenicians. Now Argentania invited the Greeks to do the same. Additionally, the Phoenicians had suffered the Assyrian pressure in their cities in the east, after their capital of Tyre had been conquered by the Assyrians in 580 BCE, the Phoenician city Carthage declared itself independent and became the center of the Punic state. Once the link with the east was cut by the Assyrians, Carthage concentrated on trade with the west. So the trade relations between the Phoenicians and Tartessos from 580 BCE this is about 30 years before the death of King Argentino, were no longer the Phoenicians of Tyre, but with the Punic Carthage, which Carthage now is very dependent on the Tartessos materials. At that same time, Carthage was in possession of a powerful navy and had the intention to become the first economic and military power in the Western Mediterranean. After the death of Argentanio in 550 BCE, all the informations about Tartessos disappear abruptly, which together with the fact that the capital of Tartessos has never been found, led to lots of speculation. How could such an important civilization disappear without leaving any trace? Most probably, the Carthaginians simply occupied the land of Tartessos. This could happen shortly after the naval battle of Elia, in which the Etruscans and the Carthaginians defeated the Greeks. This battle took place in the year 535 BCE, five years after the fall of Phoenicia in Persian hands. And this is about 15 years after the death of King Argentino. The route to Iberia was now cut for the Greeks, and there were no more possibilities for mutual help between Greeks and Tartessos. The Greek defeat that left Tartessos without allies and now exposed him to Punic attack. Indeed, it is reported that around 500 BC, the Tartessos were attacked by the Carthaginians, who destroyed their capital and left it without protection from the sea. Also, there was a Greek city that was founded under the protection of Tartessos and that was destroyed at the same time. After the fall of the capital, the whole empire of Tartessos disappeared. Historical reports indicate that Tartessos had little military defense as their success had always been based on trade and friendly relationships with their neighbors. So Carthage ended up getting most of the Spanish Mediterranean coast under its influence. In the year 460 BCE, Carthage was totally defeated and the Romans arrived to the Iberian Peninsula. There, they founded a region called Tertitania, where the descendants of Tartessos were living. 
They called this region Baetia, and the river Tartessos, which crossed into the region, was also called Baetis. According to several historians, the biblical city Tarsus was the capital of the kingdom of Tartessos. Should this be correct, we find multiple mentions within the Bible. In the oracle against Tyre, the prophet Ezekiel reports that silver, iron, lead, and tin were discovered from Tarsus to Tyre and then sold to Mesopotamia. The Book of Kings, the first, mentions ships from Tarsus, which brought three years gold, silver, and ivory as well as apes and peacocks to the court of King Solomon. Also, Isaiah 2, 12, and 16 mentions these quote-unquote ships from Tharsis. It also mentions the city of Tharsis was freed from the yoke of the Phoenicians when Sidon and Tyre were defeated. Thank you so much for continuing to listen. Your support means everything to me. If you want to help make this podcast grow, please subscribe and tell just one other person about this podcast today. We are each our own hero in this story we call life. That means one person has the power to change everything. Who is the one person you tell today, hero? Let's help keep Atlantis alive, or at least reimagined. A new episode will be released every Thursday at 9 p.m. See you then. Wait. Are you still here? Thank you. It's appreciated. Here's a clip for next week's episode. Here we dedicated a temple to Poseidon. Sailing to the east for half a day, we reached a lake. It was not far from the sea, and it was covered with many long reeds from which elephants and other wild animals were eating. Comment. The Greek name Poseidon is a translation of the name of an unknown Phoenician lord of the sea. Several lakes can be found along Mbariba. In fact, it may be called Morocco's quote-unquote lake district.